One of my favorite landmarks is a church that no one attends. Most of the world knows it as the church where John F. Kennedy Jr. was married. But in my family, we refer to it as the church at the end of the driveway. Uh, my family has been blessed to have property down on Cumberland Island, and that church, First African Baptist Church, uh, is literally at the end of our driveway, uh, which became a little awkward when people started making the pilgrimage to see this tourist site where uh, John F. Kennedy was married in this small abandoned church. Um, what are all these people doing out in the yard? But this church is intriguing to me uh, because I've passed by it many, many times in my life, uh, and I've always wondered what the story of that church might be. Because no one goes there anymore. The people who settled on that part of the island and built the church, they no longer live there. I've always wondered what their story might be. It's an important church to me. It's where I preached my very first sermon, uh, and it's a church that no one attends, so that was probably best for everyone, that uh, it wasn't for an active church service. It was just for family and friends who endured it. But this church, I've always wondered if that church had walls that could talk, what stories would they tell about the people that made it up? Because I'm reminded, and it's an old cliche saying, that the church is not about the building. It's about the people. Which is why when people have left Martha Bowman, sometimes they'll get a picture of the church uh, as their departing gift. And I, I like the way our church looks. That would be a nice gift to have, I'm sure. But I'm about to get my own picture of the church to take with me. I've got to kind of take it from this angle without killing myself. And I'm going to get most of you in here. But this is the picture of the church that I want to take with me. Because it's about the people that make up the church, that really make it what it is. Last week we began a series called Crossroads in Acts, where we are looking at some of the crossroads experiences in the book of Acts. And as we've looked at it, today we are turning to a church in Antioch. Now Antioch was a church that was built and it was starting to grow as people from Jerusalem moved that direction. And in Acts chapter 11, we are told that Paul was recruited to go there by Barnabas. And then in chapter 13, we hear just a couple of verses that go like this. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul, that's Paul, to the work I have called them to undertake. After they fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on these two and sent them off. This was the church that Paul and Barnabas had ministered within that had become their home, and it was the church that commissioned them to go out into the world. And so when we opened up the book of Acts and started talking about what scriptures we wanted to use for this series, that was the one I wanted. That story of that church in Antioch. There's something intriguing to me about the church in Antioch beyond just what most people typically know about it, which is it was where people were first called Christians. Up until that point, they had been called followers of the way, but they became known as Christians first at Antioch. 
But there, there's something more about this church that intrigues me, and it's not something that we know, it's something that we don't know. This was the church that had invested so much in Paul, and Paul went out on all these missionary journeys, starting churches, pastoring churches, going from place to place, and all throughout his ministry, he was writing letters to these churches. But he never wrote one to Antioch. What would he have said to Antioch, this church that had invested so much in him and prayed for him and sent him out to do ministry in the world? What would Paul say to Antioch? I've naturally reflected on this because today is a day that I've known was coming for a while in which Emma and I are being sent out from here. And I've reflected back on all the things that we've done here and, and watching the, the, the slide video um, earlier. It was just bringing back all these memories, um, some fun ones. I remember uh, if, the trophy that we had. We had a softball team one year, and we won our division. Not the league. We won our division, and we got a trophy that was this tall. Uh, it was very exciting. And I, I thought about as, as Owen was up here and Brooks was up here, Uh, And Thomas held uh, the the good old days of youth choir tours. And as we were traveling around, one of my favorite memories was the time that we had to unload uh, our equipment in the middle of a street in New York City during rush hour. Uh, It was awesome. No children were harmed in the process of that youth choir tour. But all these experiences and all these memories, and as I look back on it, I can't help but sense a little bit of a connection Um, to what Paul must have experienced towards Antioch. And so I asked that question, and I started looking at other things that Paul had written, and I tried to figure out, what would Paul say to Antioch? Perhaps that would help me construct what I want to say as I am sent out from here. Perhaps he might tell them to embrace prayer. Now, prayer is something that we see in a lot of Paul's churches He emphasizes it over and over and over again within his letters. And I think back on my experience here in this church. That's something I've definitely learned to be true here. When I first became involved with this church, I was a senior in high school, and I had been a part of another youth group here in town, and we had a change in leadership, and I had friends over here, and so I became part of the youth group here. And as I became part of the youth group, I went uh, right after I graduated with uh, Jeremy, our drummer, and some others, Um, that are still around the church, we went to youth camp. And I remember that was where I first met Jane and Cecil Kennedy. Now, what were Jane and Cecil Kennedy doing at youth camp when they didn't have any kids in the youth group? As the week went on, I figured out that they were there just to pray. I was like, that's awesome, a church that values prayer so much that people would give up a week of their life just to go and pray for the youth ministry. A few years later, I was sitting in a youth camp, and I was sitting in the back running sound, And I was a college student by this point, trying to figure out where I wanted to go with my life. And as I was sitting back there during a prayer time, I came as close as I think I probably have ever come to hearing the audible voice of God. Uh, I, I didn't quite hear it audibly, but it was close enough for me to know it was something I ought to listen to. And it was this voice that I felt like was directing me, and it said, quit your job and focus on music. I was working as a part-time youth pastor in Athens, and I I heard that voice, and I was like, okay, I'm supposed to go quit my job. I don't have a plan, but I know I'm supposed to focus on music. And in the process of focusing on music, um, got really involved with the University of Georgia Wesley Foundation, with the music team there. 
Uh, and that was what ended up opening up the door. Uh, little did I know, but through that time of prayer, that would open up the door for an opportunity to come here. And there were people here that were praying, and they were trying to figure out, who are we going to hire to be this worship leader for this new service that we're going to start? And I, I was looking uh, around, and I was trying to help them. And Ashley Griffin, who's our youth director, uh, he was here as a youth director then, still is here, um, doing a great job. And what Ashley said is he sent me a message, and he said, we're, we're hiring a worship leader. Um, you should consider it. And then he said, stop laughing. Because uh, he knew that I had no intentions of moving back to Macon. But he said, I, I really think you ought to do it. Uh, we've been praying about it. I think you're the right guy for it. And we began having this conversation, and I, I started feeding all these people. What about him? What about him? What about him? And then through the, the nudging of the Holy Spirit and the prayers of the people and the nudging of my mother, uh, I came back um, here uh, and it, it was the answer to a, a lot of prayers that this church had, um, and it ended up being the answer to a huge prayer for what I was supposed to do next in my life. Paul would probably emphasize prayer, because churches that, that grow, churches that are, are vibrant and healthy, they turn to God in prayer at multiple times whenever they need to. Colossians 1, 9 through 10 says this, Because of this, since the day we heard about you, we haven't stopped praying for you and asking for you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We're praying this so that you can live lives that are worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him in every way by producing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Another thing Paul might have written, I don't know, he might have said this to Antioch, is he might have encouraged them to be innovative. He might have encouraged innovation. Paul said it this way to the Corinthians, I have become all things to all people so that I could save some by all possible means. He was willing to do whatever it took to reach people for Christ. He was willing to, to change himself. He said to the Jews, I became like a Jew. To the Greeks, I became like a Greek. Because he wanted to do whatever it took to reach people, and he knew that everywhere he went and every time and in every season, it called for a different approach to ministry, and he wanted to live into that. And I think back on all the, the, the rich history that this church here at Martha Bowman has, and I think back to the story about on a piece of donated land, we landed on this corner, and we've been here since 1901, and I hear Connie McDarnell echoing in my ears, and it's grown seven times, half an acre at a time, and it, it's this great story of how the church has grown and grown and grown, and in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, how people that were part of this congregation signed their own names to the notice so that the sanctuary could be expanded, so that more people could be reached. And then in the early 90s, it was starting, not in this room, but it was starting a service like this one so that we could reach more people. And I believe that what Paul might say to Antioch, what Paul might say to us, is never give up on the idea of innovating. There are dangers that come when you get so attached to, to the heritage you might become so enamored with, I remember when. You might become so impressed with the past methods that you feel like all you need to do to be successful is just try them all over again. But, but God calls us to be a part of a new thing. And in each season, in each opportunity, there are chances to innovate, to reach new people. 
There's a quote that I saw one time that I love, and it was about the Alamo. And it said, the Alamo, first a mission, then a battlefield, now a monument. And then the next line uh, gripped me in the heart. It said, a striking metaphor for so many churches. First a mission, then a battlefield, now a monument. And I can say that this church started as a mission, and this church has grown as a mission, and it's had its battlefield experiences, but I don't think that God's done with it yet. I think that God desires to see this church continue to reach out and look for new ways to reach more people for Christ. Another thing Paul might have said to Antioch is, proclaim Christ. He said to the church in Philippi, I want to know Christ, yes, know the power of his resurrection and participating in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. One of the true joys that I have had during my time here at Martha Bowman is the opportunity to work under three great senior pastors. Bob Moon uh, used to teach me about how to proclaim Christ in the way that we care for other people. Jay Harris, it was learning to proclaim Christ in the way that we order the church and help a church move through healing, through the the grace that only Christ can provide. And then from Tim, I've learned the importance of proclaiming Christ in our relationships as we relate to one another and build community. But there's also been one other person who's kind of kept us on track during my eight years, and that's John Horton. And he tells a story a lot of times in our preacher's meetings um, about a lady that used to come up to him and say, uh, what, what does that sermon have to do with John 3.16? And she would keep asking it week after week, and he thought, does this lady want every sermon to be about John 3.16? And he, he realized that there always should be the gospel there. There always should be um, the proclamation of Christ within the words that we preach. And so a lot of times when we're sitting in our preaching meetings and we're getting cute and fancy, John will kind of steer us back and he'll say, um, you know, what's that got to do with John 3.16? We're like, yeah, you're right, John. We're, you're right. And it gets us back on track. There's a story about a Russian church. And they had a sign out front. And the sign says, we preach Christ crucified. Just like that, down the line. And over time, shrubs started to grow up, and that word crucified was covered up. And the church was still there. They were still preaching Christ. And then the shrubs would grow up a little bit more, and Christ was covered up. And all that was left was we preach. And then, finally, preach was covered up, and all that was left was we. And it's the story of so many churches that if if you take your eyes off of Christ, if you don't keep the message on the forefront, Uh, the church will fade away. Another thing Paul might have said to Antioch is this, offer hope. He told the Romans, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. And I've seen time and time again how this church here has offered hope to the world. Just earlier this month, they were offering hope to people in Nashville. Uh, Later this fall, they're going to offer hope to people in Belize Uh, In just a few weeks, our youth are going to go to Tijuana, Mexico and offer hope there. But we also offer hope in our own communities through local ministries and mission 
opportunities here in our own city. And, and we, we see that not only there, but also in the way that we offer hope to one another. How when people are going through difficult times, how the church surrounds them, shows them love, and, and, and makes them feel whole again. Uh, I've seen it in my own family. When my mom was in the hospital this past fall, how this church just surrounded us with love and support. And as we lost uh, my, my two living grandparents earlier this year, how people from this church just flooded us with love and support, offering hope to us. And our, our, our statement is to offer hope through Jesus Christ at the crossroads. And we, we realize that there are crossroads experiences that people are having all around us. And it's not just about a literal figurative place that we are on the map. It's about where people are and reaching them and offering hope. Perhaps Paul would have said to the church at Antioch, always maintain unity. One of the reasons that I was so excited about this service and so excited about this day um, is to be able to pull together traditional worshipers, contemporary worshipers, iKid worshipers, preschool worshipers, all in the same room, lifting up the same God, celebrating at the table, um, and sharing what we have in common, that, that we are focused on Christ and that we remember what Christ has done for us. And we, we celebrate that all together. And I, I just love that image of all of us being in here together for that experience uh, with the chancel choir singing and the iKids singing and the, the contemporary band up here leading us in congregational singing. Um, through all of that, that we experience that we are part of one church. But I'm not sure what Paul would have said to Antioch. He might have hit on all those things. Those are certainly things he hit on in his letters. But because we can't find that letter, because that letter may not even exist, I sat down this past week and I said, what if I wrote my own letter to Antioch? What if I wrote one and it had the message in it that I think Paul would say to that church that had invested so much in him and sent him out into ministry in the world. I think it would have gone something like this. Thank you to my Antioch, the saints of Martha Bowman UMC. Grace and peace. As I have prepared for this transition, I have been reminded of a line that my preaching professor and thesis advisor, Tom Long, used to say in my seminary preaching classes. Preachers do not preach because the sermon is finished. They preach because it is Sunday. The time has come. In a similar way, transitions feel much like preparing a sermon. We do not move because we are ready. We move because it is time. My relationship with each of you will shift from being one of your pastors to simply being a friend and a cheerleader at a nearby church. Not because I feel overly ready to say goodbye, but because I knew a while back that this year would be now that the time is here, there is much I could say and want to say, but my prayer is that the message you will hear the loudest is a message of thanks. Emma and I will forever be grateful for the many ways that you have showed love and support to us over the years. When I first started here, we had been engaged for merely a week. As we leave, we are on the eve of having our first child. 
Our personal lives have changed from being a young, engaged couple to being newlyweds to trying to manage marriage with both of us in graduate programs at the same time to now getting ready to be new parents. And each step of the way, you have blessed us with generosity, encouragement, and at the right times, needed advice. I will always cherish the ministry lessons I learned along the way. I have learned how to design a church budget, how to negotiate a con copier contract, how to design sound and video systems, how to determine where light switches go on renovated walls, how to plan worship services so that a pastor can preach two places in the same hour, not easy, how to plan events, how to write job descriptions, how to redesign a website twice, and how to nurture church community outside of Sunday mornings through social media. I can assure you that none of these things were covered in my seminary classes, yet the ever-evolving role that you allowed me to live into these past eight years gave me more training than I will ever need. Now, those examples are trivial compared to the deeper lessons that I learned along the way. You taught me that prayer and unity are foundational elements of a healthy church. You taught me that when a church experiences brokenness, there is an opportunity to remember that the same hope that we seek to offer through Jesus Christ at the crossroads is the same hope that we should turn to for our own crossroads experiences. You taught me that in the good times and the tough times of life, that nothing compares to the beautiful experience of having a strong Christian community that you can call your own. For all these things and for many more that have gone unnamed, I am thankful. My prayer for you is that your ministry will continue to expand. I urge you to encourage and uplift Tim and John as they continue to lead this church forward. Likewise, I urge you to love and support Fran and Haynes in all the same ways that you have blessed me over the past eight years. You will be very blessed by their ministry. And I'm finally, I urge you to ask this question. What is God calling me to help this church reach more people for Christ? And as Paul would wrap up most of his letters, he would have a list of personal greetings that he would share. And the generally some sort of doxology or benediction at the end. And perhaps it would go like this. Thank you to the three senior pastors I've served under. Bob for bringing me here, Jay for expanding my opportunities, and Tim for allowing me the opportunity to continue to grow under his leadership. Thank you to the amazing staff that I've had the privilege of partnering with in ministry day after day. Thank you to those in church leadership that have allowed me the opportunity to serve with you. Thank you to all the Sunday school classes and small group that have made us feel like part of your groups. Thank you to the witness of the 8.30 worshipers, the 11 o'clock traditional worshipers, and our contemporary worshipers. Thank you to the volunteers, without which we could not do effective ministry. Thank you to the saints that have gone before us, and for the preschoolers, kids, youth, and college students being raised up by our church today. To all of you, thank you for the ways that you have blessed me and prepared me to be sent out to serve. And thank you for loving Emma and me these past eight years. And finally, glory to God, who is able to do far more beyond all that we could ask or imagine by his power at work within us. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and always. Amen.